today's episode is less about a topic and more about a specific life story. The story of a French astronomer named Guillaume Legendie and the trials and tribulations he suffered over the course of the 18th century. It's an amazing story about one man's dedication to a cause. And over the course of this podcast, we'll follow him halfway around the world and back again, all in the pursuit of academic discovery. What would you give to witness a once in a lifetime astronomic event? Because I'm guessing it's a hell of a lot less than Guillaume did. Born in September 1725, Guillaume Joseph Jacinthe Jean Baptiste Le Gentil de la Glazier, and that is the last time I'll be saying his full name, originally wanted to become a priest, but eventually found his calling as an astronomer. Given what I know and you're about to hear, I think that perhaps Guillaume would have made a fantastic priest. It's clear he wanted something to devote his life to, but things with the church didn't go his way. And instead, after attending a lecture by Joseph Delisley, he turned his focus to astronomy. 18th century Europe was, at the time, firmly in the grip of the Age of Enlightenment, and Guillaume's foray into astrology couldn't have come at a better time. He gave up his clerical aspirations and jumped in headlong. In 1748, he was introduced to Jacques Cassini, and if you recognise that name, it's because NASA named a probe after him, and was offered lodgings and observational training at the Paris Observatory. In 1749, whilst working in this role, he discovered, or in a few instances technically rediscovered, four of the 110 Messier objects a series of astronomical bodies visible with the refracting telescopes of the time. You might think that 200-year-old telescopes wouldn't be much use, but this was the time when optical science was really taking strides, and one of those Messier objects, M8, discovered by Guillaume, is over 5,000 light-years away from us. It seems he was pretty good at this astronomy thing, and presenting these findings to the Royal Academy of Sciences the same year really put him on the map. Only four years later, in 1753, he was elected to join the Academy, and given that it was a lifelong position, it seems Guillaume was pretty well set. He spent most of the next seven years discovering, cataloguing, and discussing nebulae with his Parisian astronomy pals at the Academy. I'd like to imagine them meeting up at the end of the week to discuss their most recent finds, or moan about cloudy weather and whatever light pollution existed at the time. At some point during this time, Guillaume married, but the preceding events do force me to question the success of this union, for in 1760, a great astronomical game was afoot. Imagine being the first nation to know how far the sun was from the Earth. This may seem like a small detail now, but with the increased spirit of national competition in the 18th century, this was a huge deal. All the current estimates were really just best guesses, and ranged from the weirdly close to comically bad. Pride was at stake here, and by God were the astronomers of the day ready to win it. The astronomical unit is a fancy and outdated way of referring to the distance between the sun and the Earth, and it seemed that the chance to settle this distance was rapidly approaching for in 1761, Venus was set to make a transit across the Sun. The transit of Venus sounds like a pretty minor detail, but to the astronomers of the time, it was extremely important. Occurring in a 243-year cycle, the transit of Venus lasts a mere six and a half hours. Due to the nature of the orbits of the two astronomical bodies, the transits occur in a pair of about eight years apart, every 243 years. So it basically goes 106 years, transit, eight years, transit, 120 years transit, 8 years transit, and on the 6th of June, 1761, one of these transits was set to occur. The mathematical principles underlying the measurements here don't transfer to the podcast format that well, but I'll give you a brief summary because it's pretty integral to the plot. Take two points on the Earth that are far apart from one another and measure the distance between them accurately. Then, at each observation point, note the precise angle from the horizon and the precise timings with which Venus interacts with the Sun. 
The precision in this stage will essentially inform the margin of error in the final result. At this point, you can use trigonometry to determine the distance between the Earth and Venus. You can think of the distance between observers 1 and 2 as the short side of an isosceles triangle, and the distance between the two observers and Venus as the long sides. Now that you have the distance to Venus and the parallax angles from the two observation points, you can use further trigonometry to work out the astronomical unit. I'll share a link on Twitter to an article with a diagram showing the method, because I promise it's much easier to grasp when it's presented pictorially. Well, now we're caught up with Guillaume. We know that he has to get to a remote part of the planet, and that he has to get there before the 6th of June. Across Europe, these expeditions are being planned and dispatched, and it falls to Guillaume to observe the transit from Pondicherry, at this point a French possession on the southeast coast of India. It's 1760 though, and he can't exactly get on a plane. Guillaume departs from Paris on the 26th of March, 1760, aboard a merchantman bound for Ile-de-France, and launches down the Atlantic, heading for the Indian Ocean. This is before the Suez Canal, remember, so on what I imagine is his first sea voyage, his biography is a little vague, he's subjected to the wild conditions of the Cape of Good Hope, amongst the roughest sea conditions on the planet. But Guillaume has a mission to carry out, goddammit, and there's no way a little seasickness is going to stop him. Reaching Ile-de-France, and just quickly, Ile-de-France is what they called Mauritius back then. I'll refer to it as Ile-de-France because that's what he calls it in his accounts, but know that I'm talking about the island of Mauritius, about a thousand kilometres east of Madagascar, but yeah. Reaching Ile-de-France, Guillaume receives some bad news. This won't be the first bad news Guillaume receives. The Seven Years' War has broken out and France is at war with Britain. It's now July of 1760, so he still has 11 months to get to Pondicherry. In fact, I imagine he probably considered the Atlantic Passage the hard part of the journey, but he must have got a little nervous over the next eight months he spent bargaining with captains trying to hitchhike his way to Pondicherry. It wasn't until March of 1761 that he finally found a French frigate captain willing to take him on, and with around three months left before the transit, he must have been pretty relieved. Making his way east, things seemed to be going according to plan. He had a ship, Pondicherry was their next stop, the monsoon season was just around the corner. Hang on, Guillaume. Are you sure you've accounted for the monsoon season? Five weeks of unfavourable winds batter the unfortunate ship, and at one point they're forced so far west that they're creeping up the coast of Africa. To quote Guillaume's journal, We wandered around for five weeks in the seas of Africa, along the coast of Fajal, in the Arabian seas. Not exactly the east coast of India. Eventually the winds change and they begin beating back east. Nearing the French port of Mahé on the west coast of India, they meet another French ship and hear some news that must have ripped the rug out from beneath Guillaume's feet. Pondicherry has fallen to a British force. The captain of the frigate has no choice but to return to Ile-de-France. I'm sure Guillaume would have protested, begged to be left ashore, offered to take one of the ship's boats and be cast adrift, anything to not be at sea on the 6th of June. But it seems the captain was obliged to return to Ile-de-France and due to the state of war, probably didn't have a huge amount of time for the distressed astronomer. Guillaume spent the 6th of June at sea, and it seems he actually tried to make his measurements, but the role of the ship rendered his efforts completely pointless. Remember that bit about the margin for error? All this build-up, all this wasted effort, and Guillaume has missed his shot. It's difficult to put ourselves in his position. Our world is a lot smaller and far more interconnected than his was. His journal is full of useless data, his plans lie in tatters, his current passage is taking him in precisely the wrong direction. But at this point Guillaume makes an extraordinary decision. He's not going home empty-handed. Guillaume is going to stay in the Indian Ocean until the next transit. The one in eight years time. Well he's not going home, and he's not going to waste the next seven years either. He'd had enough of that waiting for the ship to Pondicherry. To quote Guillaume, he was resolved, 
to make all observations I could on geography, natural history, physics, astronomy, navigation, winds and tides. Upon his return to Ile-de-France, Guillaume begins a cartographic exploration of Madagascar's eastern coast. At this point, you might start to share my suspicions about his marriage. Floating around the Indian Ocean between 1761 and 1766, both metaphorically and literally, Guillaume gets to work taking samples, measurements, talking to Indian astronomers, and generally this being a scientific man about town. I won't go into a huge amount of detail about his off-piece research during these years, but one interesting anecdote comes from a discussion Guillaume has with an Indian philosopher who basing his estimate on a 5th century text, was able to calculate the duration of an eclipse in 1765 to within 41 seconds. Not bad. Also, on his eventual return to France, he has 8 crates worth of samples listed as part of his itinerary, so he's clearly busy. He's collecting things. After 5 years or so of this academic wandering, Guillaume begins to think about the next transit. He's not leaving it up to chance this time and wants to make sure he has a perfect setup and a lot of time to prepare. He decides that Manila... Spanish holding in the Philippines is an ideal spot to witness the transit, and having sent off a letter to the academy informing them of his intentions, he boards a boat and sets off east. Quoting his journal again, it's clear that he was excited to be back at sea. I finally left the Isle de France, May 1, 1766, quite reserved to say goodbye forever to that island. I don't know what happens to him on Isle de France, but he's definitely not happy about being there. This comes up later as well. As he finally caught sight of Manila in August of the same year, Guillaume probably felt a sense of relief. The sea transits were by far the most unpredictable aspect of his travel plans, and having been thwarted previously at sea, he was finally on land and capable of setting up his observatory. This all changed, however, when he met the Spanish governor. It's speculated in Guillaume's accounts that the governor had some kind of issue with the French in general. This may be the case, but what's certain is that he didn't look kindly on poor Guillaume. Having written to his peers at the academy before leaving Ile-de-France, Guillaume is not at all surprised when letters of introduction arrive in Manila in July of 1767, but the Spanish governor begins accusing Guillaume of spying, claiming that the letters arrived too soon after his arrival and were there for forgeries. Guillaume probably didn't feel too confident sending off for more evidence. In fact, Guillaume probably wanted to stay out of the governor's way at all costs, given the punishments of espionage in those days. When he received another letter from his friend and fellow academy member, Alexandre Pingre, suggesting Pondicherry as a more favourable site to observe the transit, Guillaume probably jumped at the chance, thinking it best to escape back to what was now, once again, a French-controlled colony, than risk, in his own words, the caprice of him who governed. With all his practice haranguing captains and weathering rough seas, Guillaume probably didn't have much trouble finding his way back to Pondicherry. In his own words, Sea voyages no longer cost me anything. I had become so familiar with this element. Another great anecdote occurs on this particular journey, when the Portuguese ship's captain gets into an argument with his navigator, forcing Guillaume to act as a mediator and, according to his account, take the helm himself. 32 days later, he's finally in Pondicherry and receives a wildly different reception to what he found in Manila. Feasting with the governor on the very same night he arrives and being offered his choice of observatory location the next day, it feels to me like Pingre, learning of his unfortunate colleague's experiences in Manila, might have put in a good word for him. Finally, everything seems to be going Guillaume's way. It's March 1768, He's got 433 days until the transit, and the governor isn't being a dick to him. What could possibly go wrong? He builds his observatory in a partially ruined palace. You have to remember the war which the British took Pondicherry or France in has only just ended. And in fact, the basement of the palace is still being used as a powder reserve. You're probably thinking I put that line in about the gunpowder to foreshadow Guillaume getting blown up, but no, it's not that, don't worry. By the time the 3rd of June rolls around, Guillaume is all set up in his observatory. 
Amusingly, he's now had a telescope sent to him by the British up in Madras, and everything is ready for the big day. He spends the 3rd of June under a remarkably clear sky, and having spent the evening showing the moons of Jupiter to the governor, goes to bed, ready for his big day. Waking at 2am, Guillaume peeks out the window and rushes to his journal. He writes, I saw with the greatest astonishment that the sky was covered everywhere, especially in the north and northeast, where it was brightening. Besides, there was a profound calm. From that moment on, I felt doomed. I threw myself on the bed, without being able to close my eyes. Things weren't going according to plan, and the next several hours are his account of praying, willing, screaming and begging that the clouds will break and he'll be able to make his recordings. Slowly and surely, as the day begins and the sky brightens, the weather gets worse and worse. By the time the sun rose, it was completely obscured by clouds. For the duration of the transit, Guillaume was unable to take a single measurement. But he records in his diary that upon the transit ending, the clouds evaporated and the sky remained clear for the rest of that day. This is what he wrote in his journal. That is the fate that often awaits astronomers. I had gone more than 10,000 leagues. It seemed that I crossed such a great expanse of seas, exiling myself from my native land, only to be the spectator of a fatal cloud which came to place itself before the sun at the precise moment of my observation to carry off from me the fruits of my pains and of my fatigues. I was unable to recover from my astonishment. I had difficulty in realizing that the transit of Venus was finally over. At length, I was more than two weeks in a singular dejection and almost did not have the courage to take up my pen to continue my journal. And several times, it fell from my hands when the moment came to report to friends the fate of my operations. Tough break. He probably wasn't too happy either when a letter arrived from Manila mentioning the clear skies during the transit. At this point, he's entirely defeated. The next transit won't occur until December of 1874 in over a hundred years time, and even a man as dedicated as Guillaume knows he won't make it that long. For all his effort, all his planning, and all his dedication, it seems that it was finally time for Guillaume to hang his head and return to Paris. Around this time, Guillaume is affected by bouts of fever and dysentery, and I can only imagine his failure to view the transit played a part in his low mood. It wasn't until March of 1770 that he was able to leave Pondicherry, and still ill, make for the Isle of France. His journal account makes him sound pretty depressed, and during this phase, the death of another astronomer who he'd befriended during his travels must have added to this load. We already know Guillaume hated Ile de France, but this next passage really gives you a sense of his conviction. Leaving in November of 1770, the ship carrying Guillaume around the Cape of Good Hope runs into trouble, a storm snapping its masts and putting the ship at risk of broaching, foundering and breaking up at sea. This sounds pretty bad, but here's what Guillaume writes in his journal. My sole worry in the midst of all these storms was the fear of being forced to see again the Isle de France. That's one way to look at a near-death experience and probably not one the Mauritius Tourism Board would like repeated. I'm just speculating here, but I mean, Mauritius is a beautiful part of the world. I imagine he's angry about the food or mosquitoes or something. He doesn't actually say what it is he hates so much, but man, he does not like Mauritius. The ship limped back to Ile Bourbon, which is now called Reunion Island, and refitted. But it was on a Spanish frigate that Guillaume eventually managed to get back to Europe. Arriving in Cadiz, on the southwestern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, he made the rest of the journey back to Paris across land. Probably quite done with sea travel by this point. 
If something goes wrong on the road, it's unlikely you'll end up in Mauritius, and maybe this factored into his decision. It wasn't until October of 1771, over 11 years since his departure, that he finally made it back to Paris. He was probably ready to get to work writing up an account of his travels, and at the very least, data gleaned around the Indian Ocean during the period between transits would amount to something. There was just one minor problem stopping Guillaume from carrying on with this project. He had been declared legally dead. There's some speculation as to how he might have received this unfortunate status. His post might have been intercepted by a hostile nation. The ship carrying the mail might have sunk. His brothers might have been scheming him out of his inheritance. Or maybe his life was a nuisance to his wife, who'd by this point remarried. What's doubly unfortunate is that being alive is a prerequisite for Academy members, so he'd also lost his job and stipend. He'd sent eight crates of specimens by sea too from Cadiz rather than lug them across the Pyrenees, and they'd got lost. Not an ideal state to find oneself in. Eventually, he was able to find someone to recognise him as the man he claimed he was, and with the help of the courts, and by some accounts Louis XV himself, he was able to regain his place at the academy and some of the plundered funds. For a man who suffered such misfortune, the ending of the story is something of a happy one, for he was able to remarry and spend his remaining years with his wife and daughter, writing accounts of his journeys for future podcasts to truncate and publish, something I guess we all aspire to. He also got a lunar crater named after him, which I guess is nice. Thank you very much for listening, and if you got this far, I hope you enjoyed hearing the story. If you didn't, you should reappraise how you spend your time, because I don't need a psychology degree to tell you that listening to something you hate for extended periods of time is unhealthy. Anyway, stay tuned for the next episode, follow me on Twitter at TCRNI underscore podcast, and remember that however chaotic your next mistake at work might seem, spending eight years in the Indian Ocean atoning for it probably won't be necessary.